Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design in Melbourne at RMIT University, and I'm with um, architect John Lee, who's co-director of McGlashan Everest Architects, and you would know their work, well, you should know uh, McGlashan Everest, probably one of, if not one of the most, I'd say probably the most important architectural practice in Melbourne, especially historically and really uh, the late Dave McGlashan and Neil Everest really were pioneers of modernism in Melbourne. So welcome to the program, Thank John. Thank you, Stephen. John, how do you start talking about McGlashan and Everest? They're really, um, they're not under the radar because people in architectural circles know their work you know, extremely well. For people who don't know their work, probably one of their most famous house projects was with John and Sunday Reed, the Heidi House, Heidi yeah. Gallery. It's a good question because, as you rightly point out, um, we are well known within architectural circles and um, within uh, the areas that David and Neil worked, but outside of that we are um, flying under the radar, definitely. So I always um, reference Heidi too as... Um, a signifier of of um, our work and lots of people, unfortunately not quite enough people, but lots of people recognise that and were surprised to know that we did that and love it. I mean, in fact, most people you talk to consider it to be arguably their, their most favourite okay. building um, that they've been to and for good reason, I think. It's at the Heidi Museum. Correct, in, Heidi Museum of Modern Art, yeah. In Bulleen and Bulleen. designed in 1967. Uh, yeah, it was actually started in 1963. It was a, a, a long project, and you've probably read the story, but um, David McGlashan in the early 60s was perceived to be um, an emerging architect, and so John and Sunday Reed, who he knew socially, through particularly through David's wife, um, engaged him on a little test case, which was to build the Aspendale House, which is on the sand dunes down in Aspendale, which remains today. And it was a modest little house um, designed to be, or designed as two pavilions floating above the sand dunes, so the sand continues all of the way under the house. And that was designed for John and Sunday Reed as their beach house. As their beach house, correct. And it was a little test to see whether David was up for it, um, which he passed with flying colours, because they managed to build it in 34 days, 34 wow. working days. That's unbelievable. It is unbelievable, and it's a beautiful little house. It's just a living wing and a bedroom wing, and you had to go outside under shelter, but outside to go to the bedroom wing. So it was that idea of engaging with the environment so on your in your living, and a central courtyard which was protected from the uh, from the onshore breezes. So it was um, all correctly oriented. For you know, our work inherently has passive um, solar design applied to it, and an engagement with the landscape. Um, so it's a beautiful little house which is still um, in fact inhabited and has actually been joined up. I think Sue Dance did the most recent addition because George Mora built a house next door and um, the owner of that house ultimately acquired the Aspendale house and have been connected together, but uh, sympathetically. Did uh, Peter Burns, <coughs> he, he, reno he renovated the second house? Yeah, uh, he did a scheme for the George Mora house um, and I'm not too sure if that was built to his scheme or not that went right. through a lot of iterations that house 
Now, I was very fortunate to go through that house. Yeah. It was just wonderful. So it's a beautiful little house. And it's still, the Aspendale house is still there. And if you walk along the beach, you can still actually walk right up to it, literally um, up to the, the window. But they've done some wonderful homes. I mean, Studley Park, there's a beautiful, I call it the tea house. It's like a Japanese tea house on stilts. The Gus in, house you're referring the, to, the probably? Gus house mm. in, in Yarra Street. Yes. Yeah. Really very elegant. Mm, and beautiful. Very beautiful. So they're kind of... They're known for their exquisite work right through the 60s, 70s and into the 80s and, you know, really quite very reductionist Mm -hmm. but very appropriate. So Mm. even when they had uh, quite wealthy clients wanting them to design beach houses or country homes, they're still quite modest in the way they're treated. It's not this pretentious, Mm. you know. Yes, they they deliberately um, appear to be simple. Um, so, you know, the, the work came out of that post-war era where there's a shortage of materials available and um, a lot of influence from American modernists um, and Japanese and particularly Scandinavian work. But it was about um, getting maximum out of minimum um, availability of materials mm-hmm. and exploring things like, you know, putting the largest piece of glass that you could get in rather than dividing it up into small windows Everything is really efficient. In fact, David was obsessive about it. Um, everything is modularised or mm. was modularised. Heidi, too, that you refer to. In fact, um, even the walls uh, and the tiles are all on a 300 um, module. So everything, the whole set out is a complete modular um, set out. Um, but even in the, in the more simple houses where there's a, a continuing module and our work even to this day, still works around module because it makes it easier to build. Um, it's easier to understand. It develops that sense of rhythm and simplicity. And then you can go beyond the module or just inside the module. So you can just dimension away mm. from it. So everything becomes really easy to understand. You don't need running dimensions, all that other stuff. Now, John, um, you're a mm-hmm. Geelong lad mm-hmm. and your father was a builder. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... Um, you could have done building, but obviously you grew up in Geelong. What was your first introduction to architecture? I mean, uh, you went to his building sites? I did. I worked on the building sites. Um, he was a domestic builder, and um, being an architect, I wouldn't call the projects um, architectural. They were very... Um, Speculative. Yeah, it was um, simple, um, at the time, suburban modern buildings because Geelong at the time was a relatively small place with lots of paddocks being developed as the edges of Melbourne still continue to be. Um, So a lot of the work was um, simple domestic building, um, but you got to understand um, stud frames and, you know, um, grids of stumps and why things were done the way that they were done, which was primarily to make it easier to build rather than um, having any architectural um, design attached to it. So I would always ask difficult questions about why did you do it that way instead of doing it this way? And naturally you get fobbed off. Well, he's just a young kid. He doesn't understand. So you've been, been, you know, you've um, visited many building sites and Mm. unlike a lot of architects who kind of, you know, they they tend to work at a number of practices, they establish their own. Mm -hmm. You, apart from going to Europe in the early 80s, you've literally been with McGlashan and Everest for your entire life. Pretty much, yes. Um, it's an unusual thing. And in fact, interestingly, um, as a Deakin alumni event, I was invited to talk about recruitment um, and getting jobs. 
And uh, I've only ever had a couple, so I was probably the last person that they should have asked to talk about that. So what, what was it like working with Neil and David? Um, completely different. Um, so Neil, uh, I don't know if you ever met them, but um, their personalities were completely the opposite, but entirely complementary from running an architectural practice. Mm. Neil um, was the ultimate diplomat, um, a gentle, um, you know, a, gen- a true gentleman, as, mm. as you would call it, um, a lovely person who was softly spoken and would guide you through things and help you get to a, a position of understanding. And David was the complete opposite. He's <laughs> He was um, um, very confident in his own abilities and didn't suffer fools gladly at all. Um, it didn't matter whether they were people working for him or, or even potential clients or builders. So he developed, um, so he had a particular way of going about things. He's a brilliant man, unquestionably a brilliant man. Um, enormous energy and drive um, and obsession about what he was doing. He was always quite clear in his mind what the outcome was going to be, and he sort of knew how to get there. So he ended up um, developing strong relationships with builders who got. Um, what he was trying yeah. to do, and builders that didn't get that, they didn't last. They didn't last at all. And clients, um, the ones that got it, love the work, and those that didn't, um, just didn't understand it at all. It was far yeah. too simple. Um, modest, I mean, I think but, there's a certain. Um, Sorry. It has a charm attached, as you know. Um, well, I recently, I mean, I, I did a tour through one of the houses uh, last year for a beach tour, and I went mm-hmm. through one in Brighton mm-hmm. um, in Wolseley Grove. Mm-hmm. Very beautiful house, mm-hmm. and the owners love it. They'd actually had a few alterations done, and they were very apologetic because they said it's not pure David McLashan <laughs> and Neil Everest. And I said, well, it's still lovely. Sean Godsell's father had done a small renovation to okay. it. Well, that's not bad. Yeah. And that's a pretty good <laughs> addition because um, he was an, um, a talent in his own right. Hmm. When the practice, I mean, the practice was known essentially for domestic work. Mm-hmm. I mean, apart from the galleries for John and Sunday Read, mm-hmm. you'd have to say up till the 80s, it was very much domestic focus. Um, the focus shifted dramatically in the early 70s when Dave, both David and Neil recognised that um, working um, or trying to run a practice focused solely on domestic work wasn't going to cut it financially. Yeah. They were looking for um, interesting challenges and education um, became an opportunity. Neil, had, as a, an ex-Geelong College person, had started doing work on Geelong College in 1968 uh, and it has a, I don't know if you've been to that campus, but it's a beautiful, um, almost English-style campus in Geelong on wide open spaces, lots of old Geelong brick, you know, gable grooves, that sort of Cambridge feel to it. And Neil um, was incredibly sensitive to what was required there, but was also able to interpret um, the modernist style of McGlashan Everest's work using the same materials, but in a completely different architectural expression. And that that became um, strongly supported by college and um, we've been working with college up until last year pretty much mm-hmm. um, on an ongoing so basis. you were telling me... I'm sorry And in Melbourne, David yeah. McGlashan and Daryl Jackson and Evan Walker had established an association to do work primarily on Wesley College in 1972 
And that association continued um, between the practices until the mid-90s. Um, okay. So were they still doing some housing in the... Um, occasional houses, yeah. yeah. Um, but they tended to need to be um, slightly more expensive houses so that just um, to run the business you needed to um, be able to spend a certain amount of time and pay the people that you're yeah. um, em- employing to, to work on the project. So they tended to be people that really wanted one of our houses first. You know, that's the, um, that's the first criteria. Um, people we may have worked with before, um, you know, we've done a house some time ago, or um, they would be quite significant homestead scale buildings, which was um, still, they were still buildings developed using the same design techniques, um, the same principles in terms of association with the landscape and the climate and materiality. Um, but just on a, a larger scale, so okay. suitable um, as a homestead, um, but still around, pr- principally around courtyard um, design principles. Yeah. I mean, currently your mm-hmm. co-director and Jeff Saunders, he runs. So you run the Melbourne office. Yep. Jeff runs the Geelong office. Mm-hmm. What's it like having that history behind you when you're taking on projects? I mean. It must be a bit like a millstone in one sense mm-hmm. um, because there is that great history there. Yeah, um, Je- well, Jeff um, has been with McGlashan Everest since he came out of university as well, a couple of years after me. Um, and so he's only had one, the one job as, as well. So we know McGlashan Everest intimately. In fact, he and I basically carry the culture of the practice um, ourselves. And we don't perceive it as a millstone at all. I understand why you, someone might think that, that you're actually locked into um, a way of thinking Thank about things, but we actually see it as a positive um, because we have enormous experience. We understand why things were done that way and the reasons remain as relevant today as they they were then. In fact, I've just come back from Spain. This is completely yeah. off topic. No, no. It's just come back from Spain. Um, in the south of Spain, and I have a really strong interest in Moorish architecture, um, which is principally um, based around courtyard design and incredible um, understanding of climate and um, societal um, effect. And those buildings, particularly the Real Alcazar in Seville, which was done by Pedro I in 1300s, he engaged um, Islamic architects and Islamic craftspeople um, to design and build um, this absolutely beautiful palace inside the Alcazar. And it's it's a um, a sequence of spatial interactions that um, manipulate people as you go in and introduce confusion so that the people that aren't supposed to be there get confused and have to go back out again, and those that are invited in are taken through a journey. You enter spaces, as you probably know, on the corners of rooms, never into the middle of a room, and your whole journey is manipulated and guided until you get to the places that you are supposed to be. But the buildings are just truly beautiful in that even in the heat of Spain they remain cool in summer, and um, in the cold of Spain, because it does get quite cold down there, they're actually warm because they capture... The, the southern sun, in their case, um, beautifully and, and do it well. They're truly beautiful buildings, and it made me reflect on our courtyard design um, houses in particular because they follow exactly the same 
processes, and I'm sure David would turn in his grave if he heard me saying that. He's not listening. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting how that understanding of movement of people through space and into spaces, um, Heidi too is a classic example of that manipulation of journey and um, space. So to approach Heidi 2, you enter through a long, low, compressed piece of space. So you, you feel shrink, you're shrinking down. You enter into a small vestibule and there's a little glimpse of the landscape um, beyond. But all, everything else is screened from you until you turn the corner and you encounter a domestic, um, you know, a really beautiful sunken living room with a fireplace. And then you step into the um, exploding height. space, you know, the double height space. So it's that that sense of excitement that people get um, and you never tire of it it's really interesting because not only are you stepping into an exploded volume but all of a sudden the landscape is completely um, with you through um, uninterrupted glass it's so, so that sort of uh, that's yeah. a sort of convoluted way of yeah. talk, thinking about things but it, yeah. it did make me reflect that um, if you've got really good um, practices and thinking behind what you're doing um, our association with McGlashan Everest doesn't become a millstone, it just becomes a um, a way of thinking about things and... I didn't mean it in yeah, either, No, I know. <laughs> I think it's just the responsibility because yeah. they have such a great name mm. and your work today is very, very fine work but it's just when you inherit practice like that, mm. there must be those, the you know, the people out there, well, let's see what they do with such a great practice. It's probably like taking over a great couture house yeah. and seeing, and it can be mistakes. I mean, I've just seen the Kristen Dior um, exhibition, mm -hmm. which is on in Melbourne at the moment, mm -hmm. Diverging. Which I haven't seen. But and um, the latest designer to take on Dior, I feel she's not quite yeah. the same as people like Raph Simon. Mm. So... You know, there is that, you know, there is that responsibility to carry a voice yes. in the right way into the future. Well, I think that that's true. Um, and um, and I don't think anyone can be David McGlashan. Um, he was his own person and you know, brilliant people are brilliant in their own way. So there's no point in trying to be David McGlashan. Yeah. Just listen to his voice. Just take what David taught you um, through and um, and take the good bits because it wasn't all good. Yeah. Um, um, and try to you know move away from the bits that didn't quite work, but but just take those learnings and the same with Neil. You know, take what um, he taught you. Um, and it was you know it's such a long period of time that we've been doing this. It's you know forty years or whatever yeah. it is. So it just feels natural to me. Um, you to were telling about that, um, John. You were telling me about you don't particularly do domestic work. You do a lot of uh, educational work still. Yep. Mm -hmm. A lot of educational work, and um, but you were telling me you revisited one of their uh, one of the McGlash and Everest early houses in Geelong recently mm -hmm. for a young couple with young children who wanted to extend it. So mm. that, and it was lovely. They actually contacted you rather than just yeah we destroying the integrity of the house we like that and we do feel a responsibility um to the practice and to david and neil to make sure that you know good buildings from that's that in that case it was a 1967 68 um building around the time of heidi just and has a lot of similarities to heidi but but we do feel a responsibility to try and um let the work continue on because it it has a timelessness to it it still works beautifully as a house 
and we can help people um, understand the house a little bit more by working through processes. So rather than turning it over to someone who has no background, we were delighted that they came to us. It, it doesn't work for us commercially to do that sort of thing, but we feel a responsibility to maintain the heritage um, because it, it could easily be um, a heritage-listed building now. Um, but we actually enjoy it because you do get to... Sometimes you get um, so engrossed in what you're doing on a day-to-day -day basis that you forget to look back and um, look back and listen and, and learn and just remember um, things. So these are great opportunities to, to reflect on what we were doing then and why those things um, work or don't work in some John circumstances. How, so given, given the importance of McGlashan and, and Everest, mm. and they are considered one of the finest, if not, how many are actually protected? I mean, that can... Buildings? Yeah, um, very few. Um, and um, in fact, the owners... How many? Well, the owners are reluctant to have them protected. And I know that... Um, uh, um, well, Heidi too, obviously. It's yeah. on the um, uh, Historic Register and as you know, won the um, Enduring Architecture Award last year. Uh, and Victoria. won several awards since. Yeah, um, so it is protected and the Grimwade House down at Rye has a protection order over it, much to the dismay of Eve, <laughs> um, who, well, she loves the house and um, basically spent most of her life in that house in one way or another and, you know, always wants to look after the house um, just feels now extra responsibility about how it needs to be mm. um, cared for. So there are really only two that I'm aware of that have any actual significance. And why is it? I don't is, know. Um, is it people just, is it, does it come down to the owners wanting to take that next step and make sure it survives for... Probably, yeah. Um, it probably does do that. Or, or interested parties um, need to you know, make a case and present it to Heritage Victoria or... And probably only until it gets under threat then people come out of the woodwork and say, look, Correct, I think we need yeah. to do something. Yeah. So um, I don't know. It's a really interesting argument about what should be protected and what shouldn't. Heidi too unquestionably needs to be, and, and is appropriately. Um, but the other domestic houses, um, as you said in your introduction, they're, they're quite simple um, minimalist things that were probably never designed to last more than 50 years, in fact. Um, so you, um, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be preserved forever, if you can, but it's, um, it's not as if we were building something that was intended to last centuries. And, um, when, you, when you look at, um, John, when you look at beach houses today and they've become mm. quiet, Grand, mm. quite suburban, <laughs> gross, <laughs> quite gross, and um, they take up the whole block. And yeah. when you see these delightful McGlashan and Everett's nestled in the coastal shrub, mm -hmm. you must feel where where have we lost our way? <laughs> where did we go wrong? <laughs> where did we go wrong? Where did we go wrong? I, I don't know where we went wrong, but um, um, it's uh, I. Yeah, I don't actually know where we went wrong, but I know how it has manifested itself. Our ideas about um, beach houses um, were always, and this started um, from David, um, that when you um, move out of the city and go down to the beach, you should be um, running around in your speedos 
and touching the sand, touching the sand, doing the things that you don't do in the city. Don't try and take the city down to the beach, and similarly, you don't need to bring the beach into the city. Um, but under, so understand that the idea of beach house is a engagement with landscape and lifestyle. Um, but it's also about um, just refreshment, um, you know, um, emotional and, and mental refreshment. Yeah. Um, and therefore, you need to let yourself go So um, down there. And the houses that are being built now that we see being built are not like that. They could be anywhere, in not only anywhere in the city, but anywhere, anywhere in the world. Pretty much in the world. Um, yeah. they're, they're, generic. It's a generic response rather than a local response. Ours are always local responses. Um, people get shocked when... They, I did a little house for some friends down at Aries um, 20 years ago for a very modest budget, which um, learnt a lot from the Aspendale house that we referred to. So it was three pavilions um, connected by... Um, Bridges or links. Fly, fly-screened um, roofed links. So you had to go out into the landscape or into the environment um, to get to the living area and so on. And it was an incredibly modest and simple house, which one of the owners absolutely loved, that, that whole experience of, of that. It was camping. In, it was like camping in a house, um, in, in fact. But young children do different things to different people, so eventually the, the covered links were glazed in, and it still works beautifully, but it's, a, it's that idea of um, a courtyard house set in a garden setting. And even to this day, people come in and are amazed at how simple and light and elegant the whole thing is, and they just feel immediately relaxed and, and relaxed. It's yeah. fascinating. You can see it on their faces. John, <laughs> tell me a little bit. Tell me a project you're working on at the moment that's giving mm. you, you enormous pleasure, <clears throat> commercial project, something that you think's really yeah, the, challenging the whole practice. Or it's well, really it's a project that we're not actually working on just at the moment, although we did a little um, piece of work into it um, earlier this year, but it's a project that was completed five years ago, the um, Ormond College Academic Centre at, um, at Melbourne Uni. Ormond College is a residential college which had, <coughs> which has been around, oh, excuse me, <coughs> um, been around since the late 19th century um, and it grew in stages and had that, um, <coughs> that sort of um, English architectural aesthetic applied to it. Davis McCackie in the 60s engaged Romberg, well, Grounds, Romberg and Boyd in various iterations to um, initiate a whole new wave of building over the campus. So um, they did Pick and Court, which was an exploration of octagonal geometry and um, Scandinavian sort of student living. Um, um, McFarland Library, which was a two-storey one done by Romberg. Grounds did the Master's Lodge. They did a whole mm. series of buildings over the site all very strong geometrically based um, and then nothing happened at Ormond for another 50 years um, and we were engaged um, initially in a master planning sense but then to do some work with the building called McFarland Library which is the Romberg building conceived by Romberg and ultimately finished off by Robin Boyd and it was a two-story building that um, was a layer cake building pretty much and had this really crude connection to the um, the main building and when the theologians moved out of that building into their new building that released the building back to Ormond to use <coughs> as its new library slash study centre so we 
we had a couple of goes at it, but we ended up with the with the new um, master Rufus Black. Um, we took on board, or we introduced to the project. Um, he was associate professor Peter Jamison at the time. He's now Doctor Jamison, who had been working with Melbourne Uni on um, understanding how students um, work and learn in the modern era. So he implemented a whole series of exploratory projects across the Melbourne University campus so that you know, students working with laptops or iPads or phones, students working in small groups or alone or larger groups, how all of that works and what makes it work because you probably are aware it's been established that um, working, learning in a group of four is much more effective than studying alone for most people um, and groups of ten bring a different dynamic to it so there are different ways of thinking about the way students learn and setting the settings that they would choose to do that in so we wanted to um you know at the um under the guidance of the new master we wanted to explore ideas of learning into this this building as well as a new spatial experience a residential college we wanted to make it a place where students would come out of their bed sits and come and work in the building like a, a domestic environment it needed to work commercially with tutorials, those sorts of things. So we ended up having this fantastic um, exploration of an octagonal building um, where we were able to take the ceiling out and expose beautiful trusses, um, cut a big hole in the floor so that the two stories were connected together visually and spatially, uh, and just create a completely different physical environment. And then we're able to place um, about 10 different learning settings into the idea of library and domestic. Um, so um, that's not completed yet? It is completed. Oh. It was completed in 2012 and, oh, okay. and actually won a National Heritage oh. Award for Adaptive Reuse as well as a State Award for Interior Design, um, State Award for Public Alts and Ads and some other, some other State Award. Anyway, it's a, it's, it, it explores the idea of Islamic geometry or yeah. of octagonal geometry um, placed into a building to try and understand what you can do with an octagonal building because they're quite difficult to work yeah. with. You divide it up like an orange if you like, yeah. but it's really difficult. So we took um, Islamic geometry and overlaid a whole series of geometric interpretations and which led to wayfinding and journey making through the space um, using the same devices of forcing or guiding people to go a particular way and be able to find their, their way. And also all of the furniture is set up to the same um, geometric patterning, so it develops a series of paths and journeys and um, hidden spaces inside, and then that is all reflected into the, the dome, in fact, the, um, the dome of the mosque um, in a uniting church. School, uh, I might add, um, or institution. So it's been. So how many years have you been with McLeish? Ever since since nineteen? Well, s part time at the end of nineteen seventy five, mid seventies. So it's, it's, yeah. it's a long, long time. <laughs> Can't you tell? Uh, no, not yet. I. Um, but I do look. I do think it's in one way. It's look. It's still exciting when you come across a McLeish and Everest mm -hmm. project. Uh, I still think there's something there. That sometimes you can't even put your finger on it. Why it excites you? Maybe it is the simplicity. Mm -hmm. Maybe it is the way it reads with the environment. But I do think, without doubt, they're one of, if not, uh, definitely Victoria's most important architectural practice. Um, and I think people would recognise that. Yes. And I think sometimes it's sad that people, you know, they don't take the time to really look at 
these buildings because you can learn a lot even if you just you know you know you have to take things forward but i think mm. not to know their work is really quite sad so for people who are listening <laughs> go out and start looking at mcglashan and everest work and it really is uh, a treat it really is a treat look thanks, thanks so Steve. much for coming on the program today <laughs> john and uh, you've been with john lee a director of mcglashan everest uh and you've been listening to Stephen Crafty talking design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Stephen.